0: Amen. Thank you, Melissa. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter number 13. Nehemiah chapter number 13. You know, the book of Nehemiah is about the children of Israel rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra and the book of Esther all sort of go hand in hand. Uh, The book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. Now, all this took place after the children of Israel had been carried into captivity. Uh, Seventy years earlier, before they came, returned to build the temple, they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. And this was by the judgment of God. God was pouring out judgment upon His people because they had neglected the Sabbath, because they had rebelled against the Lord, because they had followed after idols. You know, uh, the Lord loves us enough to chasten us when we do wrong. Amen? And He doesn't just let us go wild. I'm thankful for that, because I'd probably be wild if it wasn't for that, but... The Lord loves us enough to chasten us. And so He chastened His people and they went into captivity. Well, in the process of that, much of the city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The walls were torn down. And 70 years later, when they are uh, by divine order, God allows them to go back to the land. He moves on the heart of a man named Cyrus, who is the emperor uh, in the world at that time. And so He allows Ezra to go back with a a group of priests. And they go back and they begin the work of rebuilding the temple. And uh, not long after the temple is rebuilt, the Lord presses on the heart of a man named Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. Man, I'm glad that the Lord has a, a plan that He is enacting in our lives. He's working over here and He's working over there. When He m- needs to move this and He can move this and When He needs to move that and He can move that and Amen? That's good East Tennessee hillbilly language. We got contractions down here you didn't even know nothing about. Amen? And uh, God can do that. And that's what He did in the life of the children of Israel. And so... Nehemiah goes back and he gathers workers and he gathers the people and they rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem without a wall. They had no defense against their enemies. They didn't rightly have a city if they didn't have a wall. And so they rebuilt the wall around the city. And the book of Nehemiah is occupied with this endeavor of rebuilding this wall and all the people laboring together and working together. But I'm interested this morning, and and maybe if the Lord wills it for the next few weeks, I'm interested in chapter number 13. Because chapter number 13 reveals to us some instructive truths about getting our spiritual house in order. Now when I say your spiritual house, I don't mean necessarily the the, the home that you live in, meaning the the studs and the siding and the roof. And I don't even necessarily mean your family, although certainly we need to have our family in a right condition. But I mean you, personally, your spiritual house. You know, Paul talked about and Peter both talked about this tabernacle. Getting yourself, your spiritual walk, your spiritual life in order. And I believe we have some important truths in Nehemiah chapter number 13. I want to get into them this morning. Let's begin reading the first three verses. The Word of God says, On that day they read in the book of Moses, in the audience of the people. And therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite... "...should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them, howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time that You've given us to be in Your house this morning. Pray that you just breathe upon the preaching, that the unction of Your Spirit, Lord, would infuse the power of Your Word, equip us that we may be able to stand in this hour to deliver the truth that's most needful in the hearts of the hearers. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your goodness and grace, for Your faithfulness in our lives, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've said, the book of Nehemiah is all about laboring to work and to rebuild these walls. And when you come to the close of the book of Nehemiah, you find that three great things have been achieved and have been accomplished. The first took place back in the time of Ezra, and that was that the temple was rebuilt. Now, it wasn't in that day like it is this day where you can go to a house of God. I mean, even I would say this here in East Tennessee, man, you can find good Bible churches uh, all over. And I won't say that every church you run into is going to be a good Bible church, but there's a lot of good Bible churches uh in this part of the country. And I'm, I praise the Lord for that. I'm proud of that. I think that's a good thing. I think we need more Bible-believing churches. Amen. And uh, but it wasn't like that in the ancient uh Israel. They had the temple and the temple was the seat of God's worship. And now in the New Testament, the Bible says your body is the temple of the of the Holy Ghost. Uh in other words, we are the body of Christ. But in that day, the Lord's meeting house, the place where he sat down and met with his people, the place where they came to worship, the place where they came to know God, to learn of God, to experience God, was a place in Jerusalem called the temple. And this was given by God's instruction. The first was the tabernacle, of course, in the Old Testament during the days of Moses. And then once they got into the land of Israel, once they conquered the land of Jerusalem, uh, some years later, God laid on the heart of King David to build a temple, but He wouldn't permit David to do it because David was a murderer. He was a man of blood. It wasn't just that he was a man of war, but he personally had shed blood out of hatred and malice. And so he allowed his son Solomon to build the temple. And Solomon builds this grand and glorious temple. There's never been a building like it uh, before or since. Uh, Time would fail us to describe all the splendor and wonder, all of the gold and precious stones and silver and brass and valuable wood and materials that went into the building of this place. But the glorious thing, the most glorious thing, about this temple, wasn't what it was made of, but it was what went on within it. Because within this temple, the sacrifices would be given, uh, atonement would be made, meaning uh, man's sin would be forgiven him for another year, and God would sit down in His glory and would meet with His people in this temple. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. But now, after many long years, much hard labor, the temple has been rebuilt. Another thing we find that's a great achievement in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the wall was restored. When they destroyed the temple, they also destroyed the wall. Uh, Now, I believe a wall has value today. Somebody say amen to that. But I will concede this, that a wall was all the more important back during this time. Because it was literally, very often, the only line of defense that you had between yourself and people with hostile and hate filled intentions people that wanted to take your land people that wanted to destroy your life people that wanted to kill your family and take your things your possessions the wall very often was the only thing that kept the the enemies at bay if we can say it that way and so it was a big deal for them to rebuild This wall, and they restored the wall. That was a great achievement. Then I would say there's a third great thing that happened in the book of Nehemiah, and you see it in the book of Ezra and also in Nehemiah. Whenever God begins to work in a place, the devil shows up and starts working too you mark it down friend one of the most uh one of the most uh, glaring indictments against any work of god would be if the devil didn't show up and try to destroy it uh, sometimes we get discouraged when the devil begins to meddle and begins to try to disturb and disrupt what god is doing in our life but that ought to be a point of encouragement because he wouldn't be showing up if we weren't getting something done for the lord so they're doing something for the Lord. And so the devil has enemies, people that are doing his bidding, that show up and try to withstand and try to derail and detour and disrupt and destroy the work of God. But we find that just as God does with all of His enemies. I like what the preacher said the other day. He said uh, that, that God has many enemies but no rivals. Amen? There's no one can rival God's power and God's majesty and God's glory. So God overthrew the enemies of Israel. They couldn't stop the work of God from being done. It's a reminder to you and I, that if we have a mind to work and a heart to work and hands to put to the work, that the devil cannot stop us. We'll be faithful to the Lord. And so I would say this, the temple was rebuilt and the wall was restored, but the enemies were rebuffed. They were stopped, they were thwarted from being able to destroy the work of God. So why is it then that when we come to chapter 13... We find Jerusalem in a mess. In fact, I, I may take some time over the next few weeks and preach on it. But what we find when we come to the to the thirteenth chapter of. Jerusalem, of, of Nehemiah and we view Jerusalem. We find that the people had all kinds of, of wicked associations, friends and companions and spouses that they allowed to influence their life. We find that the high priest had kicked all of the uh, other priests out of the temple and had set an ungodly man by the name of Tobiah up and uh, basically had made the, the house of God a, a tributary unto him. We find that the people were disrespecting the Sabbath day. Nobody respected God's holy command. We find that the work of of God couldn't even transpire and take place until a, a, a cleansing took place in that in that city. We find, in other words, in chapter 13, we find the work of God in complete disarray. We find it a complete mess. Now stop and think about it with me. The temple's been rebuilt, the wall's been restored, the enemy was rebuffed, everything was in place, but their spiritual house was not in order. You know, it sort of reminds me, of the condition of a lot of church people, a lot of Christians nowadays. I don't know if you realize this, but in those three great events, those great accomplishments, I believe we have a picture of what God has done for us if we're saved today by His grace. Let me say that the temple being rebuilt, I think, is a reminder that they had the resources to serve God. You know, let me say it this way. The believer, the Christian, has three enemies that are trying to stop him at all times from serving the Lord. The Christian has the world. Now, I'm not trying to say there's a world conspiracy to stop Toby Weber. I'm not trying to say that there's people sitting around a big mahogany uh, conference room desk and uh, holding, you know, those those naked cats. I don't know what those things are, amen? And sitting around and, you know, eye patches and everything and trying to figure out how to destroy me. But I do believe this. I, I believe that the world, everything that is of God, the world, meaning the world system, meaning those that do not know the Lord, they hate those things. They're contrary to those things. In other words, if God's going this way, then the world is going to try to go this way. Then I believe the believer also has an enemy in his own flesh. In other words, it's not just the world that's trying to trip us up, but we're tripping over our own feet. We have a desire to do wrong and to sin and to do evil. I don't care who it is. Listen, I don't care if it's your favorite preacher. I, I don't care if it's your saintly grandmother. I don't care if it's your precious little baby girl or baby boy. We are all born with a sin nature. We all have a tendency to do wrong and to sin. And then, of course, I believe the devil. Uh, The Bible talks about the spirit of Antichrist. The devil is trying to destroy the work of God. But in these three events, we find this, that God has taken care of all three of those things. Hey, the temple had been rebuilt. There was a place that they could go. And when they had a desire to do what was wrong, when they had a desire to do what was wicked, when they had a desire to go astray, they could go into the temple. They could be reminded of the goodness of God. They could worship in the presence of God. They could learn the truth of God. It's a reminder of this. Listen, we do battle our flesh. But The Bible also tells us that we're to yield our uh, members as instruments of righteousness, not of unrighteousness. In your life, you're never going to get to the place where you don't have desire to do wrong. But by the grace of God and by the power of God, we can make the decision to do right. There is The temple has been rebuilt, and we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost resides in us, He can guide us and direct us and convict us and comfort us and instruct us and correct us and rebuke us and edify us. He can put us on the right path. And so it's easy to say sometimes, well, this old flesh... But every now and then we ought to say, well, this Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells within me, that resides within me, He can help me to live right and to do right. So the temple was rebuilt and we're reminded that we have the resources to serve God and our flesh should not be able to stop us from serving the Lord. And then the wall was restored. And the wall reminds me, listen, the wall was there to keep those that was outside the city, outside the city, and to keep those that was inside the city, inside the city. In other words, it was the boundary that showed that there's folks outside, there's folks inside, and the folks inside live a different life than the folks outside. I guess what I'm saying is this, that when they restored the wall, it's a reminder to me that the world cannot stop us from serving God. We not only have the resources to serve God in the temple of the Holy Ghost, in the fact that He dwells within us, but we have the freedom to serve God in the fact that God has given us the liberty and given us the power and given us the ability to serve Him even in spite of the world's greatest persecution. You'll find this, that every time the world has stood up to destroy the church, God has always blessed the church, and the church has always grown. One early fellow, I used to say old church father, but the Bible says call no man father, so one old church dude, alright? the name of Tertullian made the statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, that's the truth. The harder the world fights the church, the more power she walks in. And the fact is, we, we do have a wall around us. The Bible says in the book, I believe it's Zechariah, that God, maybe the book of Zephaniah says that God would be a wall of fire round about to His people. And we do have the freedom. If we'll follow God, He will enable us to serve Him. He'll keep the wolves at bay long enough for us to do something for Him. But then the fact that the enemy was rebuffed is a reminder to me that the devil, listen, though he may win many battles, he has lost the war. And at the end of the day, John reminded us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So now let me back up and ask this same question again. Why was their spiritual house in such disarray? Why did they have everything they needed to live for God, to walk with God, to serve God, and yet at the end of this chapter, they're not serving God, they're not walking with God, they're not living for God, their spiritual house is a total mess. Now let me ask you this question. You and I have everything we need to serve God. So, why is our spiritual house a mess? Isn't it interesting, man? We know these things. I, there, there may be some folks. We got visitors, we got young people here today. There may be people, this is the first time you've ever heard what I'm preaching. But for any of y'all have been saved any amount of time, been around Walridge any amount of time, I ain't telling you anything you don't already know. You know these things, you've known them probably for years. But why is it that in spite of all of the resources and knowledge and ability that we have, despite the fact that God has empowered us and equipped us and enabled us, why do we continue to be such a mess? Whenever Nehemiah showed up, we find he did about four or five different things that had to take place to get your spiritual house in order. What I want to do by God's grace, I'll go ahead and tell you, I was going to preach this as one message and I kept getting into it and getting into it and getting into it. And uh, finally, I looked up and saw about 42 miles of dirt that I had dug down in, and I said, this is going to have to be a series, all right? So you be patient with me uh, if we seem like we're sort of picking up and leaving off. But I want to give you a few things that you're going to have to do to get your spiritual house in. If you want to quit running your head into the wall, if you want to quit feeling as though you're spinning your wheels, I'm not saying that if you come the next few weeks and listen to this, all of a sudden you're going to be a spiritual phenom. But I am saying this, I believe I can give you some direction about some things that are going to have to be addressed in our lives before we're ever going to begin to make great strides with the Lord. And we come to the first three verses of this chapter. Some of you may have been wondering, whenever we read these first three verses, preacher, what in the world could this ever say to me? But I think the first thing, that when, when Nehemiah arrives, one of the first things that he deals with is he walks in and he sees throughout the entire congregation, he can tell by the way they look, by the way they dress, by the way they act, by the way that they talk, we'll see that later in the chapter, he can tell that he's not dealing with Israelites indeed. He can tell that the Jews that are there amongst the congregation, he can see some Moabite women, some Ammonite women, he can see some Moabite men, some Ammonite men, he can tell that these people have not followed the command of God to keep themselves from the peoples that were around them in the land. Now, let me go ahead and tell you this. Uh, This ain't got this ain't a racial thing in any way, shape, fashion, or form. Oh, it's all right. I'll go ahead and say it again. Me and Michael amen ourselves all day long. We don't care. This ain't a racial thing. Not one way nor the other. Uh, What the Lord's saying here, now, however you might feel about whatever you might feel about, that's between you and God. But I'm telling you this. What the Bible is instructing against here. I mean, don't you realize that Jews? and the Arabs is both brown, right? It ain't got nothing to do with race. That's not what God's saying here. He's not saying they don't need to marry the Moabites and the Ammonites because they're a different race. But God ties the Moabites and the Ammonites back to a very distinct event in the history of their nation and in the history of Israel's nation and says, I have instructed you not to allow yourself to become entangled with these two nations. These two nations are going to be a stumbling block to you. These two nations are going to disrupt your walk with God. And if you want to follow me, you need to keep yourself from these two nations. By the way, let me just go a step further and say this on that race thing. Uh, you know that the Moabites, the Ammonites, was both related to the children of Israel, right? Both of them was related. They're both the descendants of Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jews. They are literally blood kin one of another. What God's saying ain't got nothing to do with race. It's got to do with relationships and it's got to do with standards and it's got to do with spirituality. And let me say to you this morning, this is the first thought I want to give you in this little series. I believe we're going to have to get our associations right before our spiritual house is going to be in order. And and I'm going to say a word about reaching out to lost sinners. We need to reach out to lost sinners. We need to be a friend to publicans and sinners like Jesus. I didn't say republicans. Don't get nervous. I said publicans. You can't be a friend to Republicans nowadays anymore, right? If they're wearing a MAGA hat, you're supposed to punch them in the face. Isn't that what some people say? I'm talking about about Republicans, meaning those that that day were tax collectors, were hated individuals in society, were to be a friend to Republicans and sinners. But I do believe this, that Jesus Christ left us an example Himself when the Bible says He was separate from sinners. He fellowshiped. He was around. He he tried to reach, but He never... Listen, He wretched them, but He never allowed them to reach Him. And I believe that one of the great keys in our spiritual development is we're going to have to purge some of our associations. And we're going to have to make sure that we're uh, surrounding ourselves with people that know God and love God and want to see us walk with God. I want to give you a few thoughts this morning and then we'll close. I see three reasons in this text. Whenever they read this in the book of Moses, Nehemiah don't have to say nothing. Everybody looks around, they look at what's going on, they say, yep, we've done messed up, we need to get this right. Three reasons that were evidently apparent to them. And three reasons that I believe we ought to be separatist in our personal relationships and associations. Let me say, I am a separatist Baptist. I am a separatist. I ain't mad about it. I ain't got no bone to pick with anybody. But I do believe this, that there are certain crowds and certain people we just ought not run with. I believe it's to our spiritual detriment if we allow them into our lives and if we run with them. And this principle is found throughout Scripture. In fact, let me give you three reasons very quickly that you ought to get your associations right. Number one, because of the holy command of God that's given concerning. Look at verse number one. How did this whole thing start? On that day, the Bible says, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. And therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Now let me go ahead and tell you, I'm not a Jew. You ain't a Moabite. You ain't an Ammonite. Amen. Closest thing we've ever had to an Ammonite was some folks named Ammon. Somebody say amen to that. But we ain't ever had no Ammonites. We ain't ever had no Moabites. You ain't a Jew. I ain't a Jew. Uh, we're not talking about that, but what we are saying this morning is that there is a spiritual principle found here. The Ammonites and Moabites, every time they got around God's people, they tried to draw them away from true worship of Him. And God says at some point, you've got to start cutting your relationships with those people. At some point, you have to be willing to walk away. At some point, you have to be willing to put a boundary between you and them. And he starts by saying this, the children of Israel found it written in the Word of God that they had no business fellowshipping with Moabites and Ammonites. Now, again, I'd remind you, I ain't a Jew, you ain't a Moabite. But this same principle, this same spiritual truth is found in the New Testament. That Bible believers, that Christians, that born-again individuals, people that know Christ as their Savior, have a responsibility to be pure in their associations. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, sometimes we tie this to marriage, and I think there is a truth to be found tying it to marriage. We tie this to ministry, and I think there is a truth that can be uh, there is a way in which we can tie this to ministry and it be true. But I'd remind you that Paul, he's talking to a church body. He's talking to Christians in Second Corinthians chapter six. He ain't necessarily just talking to folks looking to get hitched. He ain't just necessarily talking to pastors. He's talking to Christians. And he says this be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he tells them why. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? The word Belial is an old name for Satan. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore... Come out from among them. Who's them? Well, the people he just talked about. People that are unbelievers. People that are unrighteous. People that walk in darkness. People that uh, worship Belial. uh, People that are infidels. uh, People that worship idols. The people that he just mentioned. He said, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Then he says, and I'll receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Which, by the way, he's quoting an Old Testament passage there. What he's saying is this principle of separation in our relationships, that God's people ought not walk with people that are actively living in unrighteousness and fellowship with them in that unrighteousness. This principle was found in the Old Testament. But Paul says this has application to us Christians, us New Testament believers that God expects us to be pure in our associations. It's recorded in God's Word. Let me give you a second thought. I'd remind you of this, that this principle of separation, it's rendered in God's wisdom. I-, I thought good and long about this, because I think a lot of times people take the right Scripture and go the wrong direction with it. God did not give this command because He hated the Moabites or the Ammonites. In fact, you'd find just a few short, uh, cha- or a few short books earlier, you'd find a Moabitess by the name of Ruth, And Ruth would uh, be given an an entrance, be accepted into the family of God because she, in faith, followed her mother-in-law Naomi from the land of Moab back to the land of Israel. She was married by a a man by the name of Boaz. And Ruth was part of the lineage and family of God because she was willing to leave Moab, turn from Moab, walk away from Moab, and go and be a part of the family of God. That right there tells you what it is God has a problem with. God didn't have a problem with the color of a Moabite's skin. didn't have a problem with the blood running through his veins. He didn't have a problem with his DNA, his genetics. God had one problem and one problem only with the Moabites, that they were an ungodly people. God did not hate the Moabites. In fact, when He found a Moabite that would love Him, He loved her. He brought her into the family of God. God didn't hate them. And listen, God doesn't want you to be pure in your relationships and in your walk and in your associations because He hates those people. He doesn't want you to be that way because he hates that person's trying to get you to do wrong. He doesn't want you to be that way because he despises that person's a bad influence on you. He does it for one reason and one reason only. He is wise enough to know that, listen, you walk with someone long enough, you will become them. The wise man said, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. What you'll be in ten years. And whoever it is that you hang around, you'll eventually become them. So it's in God's wisdom. The book of Proverbs teaches this principle in the first chapter. Solomon, the wisest man other than the Lord Jesus that ever lived, uh, wrote this to his son, presumably Rehoboam. He said, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us and let us all have one purse. That's when I start to get nervous. That let us all have one purse. Hey, I, I, listen, I can be for a lot of things that you might be for, but when everybody starts saying, let us all have one purse, I get a little nervous. Amen? A lot of folks running for president say, let us all just have one purse. No, thank you, I'll keep my wallet in my back pocket. Somebody say amen to that. said, let us all have one purse, and that's where we get to the real rub. What they wanted, they were after his money. And Solomon says, when that happens, my son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. In other words, Solomon said, son, you better watch who you associate with. Because if you're not careful, they'll draw you in and they'll destroy you. It's rendered in God's wisdom. I'd remind you this, I don't have to dwell on it because I've sort of preached around it, but it's rooted in God's love. God tells us to be pure in our associations, not because He hates them, but listen, because He loves us. You love something, it's going to make you hate some things. Uh, we have this, this false narrative and notion and propaganda about love. that uh, You hear it all the time. People say, love have no labels and this, that and the other. Hey, listen, I love some labels. I love for there to be a label on the rat poisoning. You know why I want labels on the cleaning chemicals in my home? Because I love those boys. Because I love my wife. The fact is, you love some things, going to make you hate some other things. The shepherd, he hates the wolf because he loves the sheep. Right? Am I right? Hey, listen, the, the, the soldier, he hates the enemy because he loves his family. The farmer, he hates the weeds because he loves the crop. You, you love some things, it's going to make you hate some things. And God, listen, it's not that God has personal animus towards those that are without, those that don't know the Lord, those that that, that are, are alienated and strangers from God. Can I just clue you in on something? He died for them. He died for them. It ain't that He hates them, but it is that He loves you enough that He doesn't want, if they're unrepentant, if they won't turn to God, if they won't be saved, He doesn't want them destroying you. So He says you ought to keep a distance. You can love them. You ought to love on them, you ought to be good to them, you ought to try to reach them, you ought to witness to them, but you ought to keep a distance and recognize they can destroy you. So, I believe that they did this because it was a holy command. Let me give you a second reason that God gives them. They ought to be separate in their associations because of the holy command, but number two, because of the history that they had with the Moabites and Ammonites. Look at verse number two. Now, this was what predicated this command of God. It was back when the children of Israel were journeying from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they sought help. They wanted food. They wanted water. They wanted protection from the people around. God says in verse number 2, "...because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them." Uh, Let me say that we ought to be separate in our associations Because there is a long, long history of the world hating Christians and of Christians not being able to appease the world. Man, it never fails, it never fails. You see this all the time. You see it in politics a lot. Uh, I, I remember, listen, do you remember when John McCain was a war criminal? Right back before he withstood against Donald Trump and then died? He, he, he was a war criminal, he was a murderer, he was somebody that ought to be lynched up. And then all of a sudden, man, when he's on the right side of the playing field, the people that are in politics, man, they love him. He's their hero. He's the greatest guy that's ever lived. In other words, common enemies sometimes make strange bedfellows. It's funny, man. Even today, there are some that will look backwards and talk about George W. Bush and what a great president he was. That at that time hated him and said he was uh, he was selling blood for oil and he was a war criminal and all this stuff. But all that stuff's changed now. You know why he ain't president anymore? They got another president to beat up on. And there's always a group of people that thinks if they will concede and if they will agree with, if they'll just move to the middle, then the folks on the other side they're going to appreciate that, they're going to respect that, and they're going to love them but it don't never happen that way. It don't matter how many concessions they make to the other side. By the way, this is true on both sides. Uh, this is just the nature of our politics today. Everybody's out for blood. It's just the way it is. You might as well live with it. You might as well vote like it, because that's just the nature of it today. Everyone's out for blood. But Christians have this same kind of uh, uh, of, of complex where they'll say, well, maybe if we just become a little more like the world, maybe we just embrace a little bit, of, maybe if I just dress like the world, I won't do nothing else, but I'll dress like the world, then the world will accept me. But you know what they always want? They, listen, they, they always want to push your top line lower, your hemline higher. They always want to push your clothes tighter. Don't matter how many concessions you make, they're going to want you to go further. People say, well, no, 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 preacher, I, may, maybe if I just... I, I know drinking's wrong, I know I shouldn't, but maybe if I just drink a little bit, then I'll be able to witness Then they'll know that I love them. No, listen, you drink a little bit, they're going to want to give you more. I'm saying this, there is a long storied history that the world will never be satisfied with your compromises. They will always want you to go further and further and further and further. It ain't like this thing ain't been tested. We know. And the fact is, there are just two absolutely irreconcilable philosophies and ideals between the saved, born-again child of God and the person that lives and dwells and operates in the world. You're never going to reconcile them. They can't be reconciled. It's impossible. There was a history here. I want you to think just very quickly about this history that they had together. Uh, Let me say, number one, that their callousness was one of the things that God pointed to. He said, man, don't you remember... Children of Israel, when you was coming out of the wilderness, you didn't have a home or you didn't think you did. You was wandering two million strong through the desert. I was feeding you with manna from above and water from a rock. And you came to them and all you wanted was a little bread and water. But when you needed them, they sure didn't need you. And they said, go ahead and take a hike. We ain't interested in helping you. Listen, at the end of the day, I thought about the uh, prodigal son in Luke chapter number 15. He had lots of friends till his money ran out. And then all of a sudden, what the world is and who the world is and what the world does was on display. Can I just remind you that this world does not care? Does not care? I'm not trying to be ugly. God does care. The Lord does care. The people of God do care. I'm not saying nobody cares about you. But there's a reason. The psalmist cried out and said, No man cares for my soul. He was looking at the world around. He said, Man, this is a cold, harsh, cruel place. And I could be laying down in a gutter, dying needing only a sip of water, and there'd be people walk right over top of me and not even care. You can read stories and statistics of it, of crimes that are committed in major cities a lot of times, and there'll be 20, 30 people that hear this crime taking place, but they won't intervene. You know why? They don't want to get drawn into the mess of it. And they'll just close their windows, they'll just put their headphones on, they'll just turn their TV ladder because they don't want to be dragged into that thing. They know something's going on, but they don't have time for it. That's the attitude of the world. Listen, the world can walk by a paralyzed man. The religious crowd can walk by a paralyzed man for 38 years and never so much as help him into the water. They can step right over a a, a person that's been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road until a good Samaritan walks along, picks him up, and wraps him up. I'm saying this world is a callous place. And so you better think before you start making concessions to this world, you need to be reminded this world has no love for us. It's a cruel, cruel place. Listen, I, I, I don't understand scientifically how people could go in for Darwinism. Scientifically, I don't understand how people could believe in evolution. And I can give you a hundred thousand reasons and keep us here till four o'clock of why that is. But I can completely understand societally, culturally, socially why people believe it. And maybe it's a product. In fact, I believe it probably is. We've told people they're animals for so long that they believe it. And they act like it. But listen, it ain't a hard stretch when you look at how mankind is, how the world is. It's not hard to imagine that there's not much difference between them and that monkey swinging in a tree. The, the callousness, the coldness, the lack of compassion. It's a callous place. Let me say, number two, he points to this, that they're a callous group. They're callousness, but number two, they're corrupting influence on their lives. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about the story. So, a man by the name of Balak, who is the king of Moab many many years prior he hears what the children of Israel are doing that their man they're marching through territories they're overthrowing armies their god is marching as as a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke at the front of their uh, of their army they got this strange leader named Moses who wears a veil all the time because his face glows with the glory of heaven and this whole nation 2 million strong is moving through the wilderness and it scares him and he says man i don't want to be like them he says, I need to do something to try to stop them. So he goes and he finds a prophet by the name of Balaam. Now we have every reason to believe that Balaam was probably a pretty good old fellow before the Moabites got to him. But the Moabites corrupted him. They come to Balaam and they say, we'll pay you uh, such and such money if you'll go and pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. That way their God will forsake them. They'll not have uh, They'll have all kinds of problems. We can destroy them, we can kill them, we can overtake them. Balaam answers, "Pretty. I, I like his answer. He says, hey listen, I can curse them, but they're a blessed people. And you can't curse who God's blessed. God's just going to bless him anyway. And Balak, he says, man, you're crazy. You're the prophet. Go do some profiting. And he says, go and, and, and pronounce a curse. So Balaam finally says, listen, I'll go if you want me to go. But it ain't going to do no good. So he goes and he tries to pronounce a curse over him, but blessing just pours out of his lips. Four different times he tries to do that. And it just ain't going to work. So you know what he does? He goes back home and he gets thinking about that chunk of change that Balak offered him. And he says to himself, I cannot curse them, they're a blessed people. But maybe, just maybe, maybe I can get them to curse themselves. And you know what he does? He goes to Balak and he says, I think I figured out a plan. Here's what we'll do. Why make them your, friend, or your enemy when you can make them your friend and accomplish the same thing? He says, give your daughters and your sons to them in marriage. And you just bring that Moabite and that Ammonite worship into those Israelite homes. And pretty soon there will be no difference between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And their God will forsake them because they've turned away from Him. Balak says, I think that's a pretty good idea and that's what they do. And there's a, an event in the Bible. It's named after the place that it happened at. But it's, it's often referred to as an event called bel Peor, In which God began to smoke the children of Israel with a plague because they'd embraced the, the false idolatrous worship of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And what God is saying now in the book of Nehemiah? Is, Don't you remember how they tried to corrupt you years ago? Don't you remember how they sought to undermine your walk with God? Don't you remember how they sought to disrupt and destroy your righteousness? He says you need to remember that the world, if it can, it's going to corrupt you. That's what it does. And I just remind you this: that listen, there's a reason we say one bad apple spoils the bunch. It ain't a bunch of bad or a bunch of good apples fix the spoiled one. It's the one bad apple spoils the bunch because the fact is everything tends towards decay. And that's true in relationships as well. Their corruptness. And then I want you to think with me for a moment about their cursing. They wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel. They wanted them dead. And can I just remind you that this may not be true about you personally. There may not be anybody sitting around with a hit list with your name on it. Maybe there is. I don't know. (laughs) But at the end of the day, the world hates your Savior. They nailed Him to a cross. And inasmuch as you look and act and behave like Him, they're going to hate you too. They're going to hate you too. Now listen, I ain't trying to get you to put a tenfold hat on. I ain't trying to get you to walk out here thinking the world's lined up against you. But I am trying to get you to understand that the world is no friend to you. It wasn't the world that forgave you of your sins. It wasn't the world that saved you. It wasn't the world that lifted you out of the miry clay. But it was another one. And that is what I find in my closing statements in this passage. Because of the holy command, they ought to be separated in their associations. Because of the history they had with them, they ought to be separated in their associations. But also, because of the help of the Lord, they owed it to God to be separate in their associations. Look what it says, verse number 2. It says, Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Then I like this word, man, how be it. How be it. In other words, what that means is even though, even so, (laughs) even though this happened, even in spite of it all, how be it, the Bible says, our God turned the curse into a blessing. I see a few important thoughts. And listen, if you're lost here today, I want you to pay extra attention for the next few moments. The children of Israel are marching through the wilderness. The world hates them. Their enemies hate them. They're encamped around. They want to see them starve and die in that wilderness. And that is exactly what would have happened if it hadn't been for God. The Lord intervened to deliver them. God could have left them in that condition. God could have allowed that to happen. God had no responsibilities. God had no obligations. God would have still been God if He had allowed the Moabites to run over every single Israelite, to leave them dead with their bones bleaching in the desert sun. And He could have done it. How be it? But God intervened so that that would not happen You know why you ought to be separated in the way that you live? You know why, listen, you ought not argue with God or the Bible about the way you dress or about the activities you partake in, about the people that you hang around, about the way you spend your money and your time? You know why you ought to give your life to Christ? You know why you ought to give every bit of it to Him? I'll tell you exactly why. Because you were walking through the desert of this world. You had no hope. You had no help. You were out there to die, not out there to live, but the God of glory stepped out from His throne and walked amongst men and did something to save you from that fate. This is what Paul said about it in Ephesians chapter number 2. He describes our condition. He says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. If I saw a man wandering through the desert with no bread or water, I'd say, that's a dead man. His heart may still be beaten, his lungs may still be breathing, but that's a dead man. He has no hope. You were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. By the way, did you see that threefold enemy list there? The world, the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, that's the flesh. That's where you were at. That's where they got you broke down, messed up, on your way to hell, ready to die. That's where the world left you. The Bible says, among whom also... We all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive, is what that means. Breathe life into, given us life, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. i tell you why you ought to be separated in your associations. Because but God. Those associations was dragging you down to hell. But God intervened to save you and to rescue you. Let me give you a second reason. The Bible says, how be it? Our God turned the curse into a blessing. And you may not see much right there, but I find a fascinating and blessing and, and, and a wonderful truth in that passage. Because I remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter number 3. You see, the Bible describes the lost person as living under a curse as well. That's the curse of the law. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter number 3, verse number 6. The Bible says, "...even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, "In thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed." with faithful Abraham. In other words, the way to get to God is by faith. This is the reason why. For as many as are of the works of the law, that's people trying to get to heaven through doing good things. For a Jew in ancient Israel it was keeping the Old Testament law. For us today it's trying to satisfy the law of our conscience. People say this all the time, well I'm just a good person. Well who said that? I don't say that about myself, friend. I'm not a good person. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm not, I'm wicked, I'm unrighteous. If I'm left myself, I will not do what's right, I will always do what's wrong. Ain't nobody talking about being a good person, not being a good person. People say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, according to who? According to your own conscience. According to what you just think. Whatever standard you set up of being a good person, that's what you think you are. And so, those that live according to the works of the law, that are under the works of the law, the Bible says are under the curse. Hey, that's a two-edged sword, friend. In other words, if you say, if I do these things, I'm righteous. What happens when you don't do them? Then you've condemned yourself as being unrighteous. If man wants to approach to God under his own good works, he has to be as as good as God says he has to be. How good is that? Holy. Righteous. Without spot. The only kind of lamb that God would accept in the Old Testament was a perfect lamb. Without blemish. Without spot. Are you without blemish or without spot? I know I'm not. Hey, they're under the curse of the law. Because they're a sinner, they deserve to die for their sins by God's law. That's a curse. But now look what God did. <laughs> the Bible says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law. Now Paul says this, But that no man is justified by the law on the side of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Now listen to this. The law is not of faith. For the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed! is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You know what happened? Man said, we can be good enough to get to God. We can do the right thing. Listen, we we can obey. We can always open doors for people. We can always tip real well. I used to say we'd always rewind the, the tape before we returned it to the video store. But now half the people I'm preaching to just go. When I say that, Whatever. Wipe off the DVD before you put it back in the case. Whatever makes sense to you. We'll do good things and that will make God happy and He'll be pleased. You know, the problem with that is this. No man can live perfectly. No man can do right all the time. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you think you are. We are all sinners. Every single... We've all sinned and come short of the glory. So you know what God did? God said, You have a curse on you because you've broken the law. You can't get to me. You can't save yourself. You can't keep your promises. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send one that is perfect. I'm going keep His promises. I'm going to send one that's never done anything wrong. And then He's going to step into your place. You should have died there. But He's going to step into your place. He's going to bear your curse. He's going to bear your punishment. And then all you have to... do is believe on Him. And now that's not a curse anymore. That's a blessing. God inverted to deliver them. What should have been a curse became a blessing. That's what God did for us. Hey, it should have been a curse to come face to face with the God of glory. We should have died in our sins. But God made it a blessing. God made it a blessing. And then finally, and I'm done this morning, I want to say, we need to be reminded God intended to deliver them. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, this is what I'm saying. God did all that in the lives of the children of Israel. You know why? Because He didn't want them to be like the Moabites. He didn't want them to be like the Ammonites. He wanted a different life for them. He didn't want them to follow the same old broken idols. He didn't want them to be caught up in the same old sin. He wanted a different life for them. And God went to great lengths... To pull them out of that mess, to rescue them from who they were and what they were, and to give them a different kind of life. God intended to deliver them. And now you know what they're doing in the old chapter 13, the book of Nehemiah? They're just going right back. That same old mess. You know why you ought to be separated and who you hang around, the way you live? You ought to live like a Christian, not live like the world. There ought to be a difference in the way you live and the way the world lives. There ought to be a difference in the way you dress, the way the world dresses. There ought to be a difference in the way you talk, the way the world talks. You know why? Because that's what God wants for you. Because He paid a steep price. He came a long way so that He could save you and change you. We say all the time He saved us from our sins. You know what I think most of us really mean? He saved me from hell. Most of us, what we really want to say is He saved me from hell, but I want to hang on to my sins for a little longer. The fact is, when God saved you, He saved you from all of it. He don't plan on you going back to Egypt, friend. He pulled you out of that mess. He don't plan on you going back to the ways of the Moabites and the Ammonites. He plans on you living in a new life. And if for no other reason than this, that God loved us, That God died for us. That God saved us. And that God intends for us to live a separated life. If for no other reason, that ought to be reason enough. To say, Lord, I'll give my whole life to you. I won't hold anything back. You bought and paid for all of me. Now, Lord, it's about time you got what you paid for. You can have my whole life.